Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for a potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, welcome to the On The Tape Podcast, Guy Adamic, Dan Nathan, Danny Moses, joining you. Happy to be joining you, folks. How are you, Dan? I'm doing great. Danny Moses, how are you? I'm doing well, my man. Danny, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a yes or no response. You're familiar with the band Five Man Electrical Band? Yes or no? No. No. Nor should you be. But we're going to get into that. By the way, on the back end of this, Dan Nathan and I had a great conversation with Stephanie Link at Hightower Advisors. You folks know her from CNBC. She's either on at 5 a.m. or 6 or 7 p.m. and everything in between, Dan Nathan. Yes, she is. We had a great conversation with Steph. And she was last on the pod, I think last spring, and she was fairly optimistic. This was coming out of the SVB debacle a little bit. And we reviewed some of the themes that she got right in 2023 and some of the things where she's switching gears a little bit in 2024. So she's got some different themes, still remains very constructive, not just on the U.S. economy, but also on the markets. We drilled down on some sectors and some individual names. It was a great conversation. So stick around for that conversation with Guy, myself, and S-Link. A lot of fun. We also have some stuff going on next week that Dan's going to talk. We're busy, busy, busy. We are busy. Like Dan, little bees. We are actually joining Danny Moses down in Miami Beach. We are going to be at the iConnections Global Alts Conference. There's going to be thousands of asset allocators and fund managers there. We are going to be broadcasting our market call live from there. We're going to be broadcasting CNBC's Fast Money live from there. Danny Moses is going to be on the Fast Money. A lot of vests. A lot of. I'm wearing there, mine right now. And, and this is yeah. really cool, Danny. I, like, can you give our listeners, our viewers, a little heads up on this? So you, Steve Eisman, okay, Porter yep. Collins, Vincent yep. Daniel, yourself, you guys are going to be doing a panel at the Global Alts. 
Melissa Lee, the fine host Stop of it. Fast Money, is going to be moderating. You guys are also going to be coming on Fast Money. When is the last time the four of you guys, and again, featured in the Big Short, prominently featured in the Big Short, okay? When was the last time you guys were all together on stage talking about markets like that? I don't think that the four of us have ever, I think we've been two and two and one and three and one at various conferences and so forth. The last time I attended something where Steve spoke, which was at a fixed income conference in 2007, when Steve started out by saying, because things were still kind of up in the air, Steve said, look to your left, look to your right. And they look to the left, look to your right. And he says, if you have Prozac, give it to the guy next to you before I begin speaking or something like that. So classic Steve. And then as people know, what the, the big short was pretty accurate, but the best scene sitting next to Steve was him putting up the zero mm-hmm. when there was a mortgage company, option one, and Steve interrupted, what did you say your losses would be? Not north of 5%? And the guy said, yes, thank you. And he, Steve held up the zero. And I literally sunk in my chair like this. And it's a true story. And then Steve just got it, took a phone call and got up and left. Zero chance your losses will be less than 5%. So you never know what can happen in these things. And so I'm looking forward to it. It's like a Beatles reunion. The like, four of you. And Melissa is the perfect person to moderate that panel. Yeah. So we're looking forward to that. And we'll be Fast Money will be broadcast Monday and Tuesday from Miami Beach, the iConnections Conference. Almost 4,000 people will be attending. Yeah. Which is remarkable. Well, and that market call, we're going to broadcast live from there. We're also going to put your segment on stage. I think it's going to be at least a half an hour with that whole crew. We're going to put that on the Risk Reversal Media feed. We also have a bunch of great conversations. I'm going to actually be speaking with our good friend Rick Heitzman Mm -hmm. of First Mark Capital, Alexis Ohanian of 776. So we're going to have a private tech conversation. Guy, you got a bunch of stuff on stage. So a lot of great speakers, a lot of great things going on. Tune in to the Risk Reversal Media YouTube page because we're going to be broadcasting a bunch of it, guy. Blow that shit up. Okay, so I started this by asking Danny a question that he did not know the answer to. Shocking, because he should understand how my mind works at this point. In 1971, Dan Nathan, a band called the Five Man Electrical Band released a song. The B-side, by the way, was a song called Hello, Melinda, Goodbye. Now you're saying, okay, guy, what are you talking about? Nobody remembers that. But they do remember the song Signs when Tesla came out oh, with that yes. sign, signs, there it is. everywhere the signs. And I got to tell you something. It is a fitting song today because we're going to talk about Tesla in a little bit. But however, signs, signs, Dan Nathan, everywhere the signs. And in terms of the market, my God, there's some blow off tops in a number of different stocks. I mean, things are absolutely going parabolic. United Rentals, URI, a name some of you may know from Karen Feinerman. Obviously, these tech stocks, these semiconductor names continue to sort of go parabolic. The move in Netflix was remarkable if you think about it. The stock had had a huge run into earnings. It's building upon that. But the signs are there, Dan yeah. Nathan. Signs, well, signs. Well, I think what you're getting at, too, is that, so you mentioned Netflix. This was a $200 billion market cap company that just gapped up 10% the day after its earnings in just one fell swoop, right? So good fundamental news, unexpected, gaps higher. URI, you just mentioned, totally different sector, gaps up to new high. IBM, this is a stock that we don't talk a whole heck of a lot as we're recording Thursday into the close, is up at a new multi-year high, up 10%, not something I had on my bingo card. Mm-hmm coming into this year. American Airlines, a stock that's up 
10%. Now, it's not trading at a 52-week high, but again, after better-than-expected guidance on the year. Now, again, the backdrop of that is one of the a, a stock that was $700 billion in market cap just a couple weeks ago, which is Tesla, is down 13%. Hasn't seen an uptick all day. I guess what I would say about the signs guy is that when you start to see this sort of disconnect in price action on a short-term basis based on news that is widely expected, whether the sentiment is positive or negative, that's another story, right? But we know that these companies are going to be reporting earnings and guidance, right? And the fact that however folks are set up into them, that you could cause a 10% one-day move, that's the thing that's important to me. And the fact that we're looking at it here today, and I know Humana's down a bunch and that's a big stock, but the fact that we're looking here today after some of the early volatility that we had this year, specifically in tech stocks that did a lot of the heavy lifting last year, it almost feels like a blow-off sign, guy, like that we're getting a little too euphoric, Danny Moses. And again, by the way, when you were doing your little bit before, I thought you were going to do four and three and two and one. When Danny's on the yeah. mic, these suckers run. Get it? That, oh, come on. That's beasties. You I was going to do welcome risk reversal front stage down in Miami. Risk reversal. <laughs> have a lot of opportunities down in risk reversal. I was going to say, so Guy, what was the show that ran for three and a half years and came out in September of 1966? Adam 12. No. I don't know. That would, know. Be, that would be Star Trek. That would be Star, Star Trek. Trek. Only, it was only and a second. Very clear. It was only yeah. three years of Star Trek? The original Star Trek ran from 66 to 16. I am not a Star Trek person. Nor am I. I have nothing against it. I was never into it. But I started to think of a couple of phrases that you stick with you in Star Trek. So I know you got your five burger, five burger guys, whatever the thing is, five guy burger. The line where no man has gone before, right? Let's go where no stock has gone before. Live long and prosper. Go long and prosper. But the one that sticks out most is Spock. When he just turns this thing, that's highly illogical. It's just not... (laughs) logical, right? And so when you try to approach logic into this market, you're not going to make money. You have to start to take a leap of faith. To answer Dan's question, these moves that we've had, I've always say that earnings are beauty pageants, right? You come out, you should be prepared maybe for what to expect, but I think they like it. I think they like it. And these market caps and Netflix, the IBMs, as a portfolio manager, we've learned now the last year, you cannot afford to miss these type of runs. So what you're going to see is an up five turns into an up 10%. Because you have to pile in and quote, mm-hmm. I can't miss it. I can't miss the next NVIDIA. I missed it last May on the initial run. I don't want to miss it. Now, these are good companies, but we all know that on these kind of beats, just IBM in general, great, a 1% increase in orders for AI software. Okay, now we know they're in AI. We knew it. They had a good quarter. They beat the number. Check, check. I can own this thing. It's not that expensive. But to have that type of market cap move, Netflix, great, going into live sports. They're going to do it, sign a deal with TKO to broadcast live wrestling. Cool. Guess what they're starting to look like? More like a media company. Mm -hmm. Good for them. They have 260 million subs. I'm not saying there's still not room to grow. I don't know how much more room there is to grow on that. And on the password sharing file, I give Netflix credit. They've had two major changes in their lifespan. One was when you were getting mailed those discs and you had to mail them back, right? And the second was when they went streaming. Both were huge risks. They're obviously converting people that want to keep their Netflix and notice the password sharing. So good for them. But again, it's not something that I would chase. And I've made it class that I would never be short something like that. But I think that quality is going to get rewarded. Beats are getting rewarded. Missing is getting overly punished. We talked about that going to 2024 as a theme. And so can it last a little bit longer? Sure. Couple that with the GDP print that we got today, backwards looking, but very strong with very low inflation reads. That's a nice setup to feel like you can go run and buy things. At the yeah, moment. and that's, that's clearly it. what's going on. By the way, it's five-man electrical band. It's not five guys, burgers, or whatever you said. So just <laughs> let's clarify. All right. But something right. else happened this week, and I want to be crystal clear. I don't think the worst is over in terms of what's going on in China, Danny Moses. However, 
I think they've basically decided they're going to throw a lot of money at the problem. And I've said this a number of times. There's going to be a point where this is going to be very tradable. And I think in the form of FXI, Danny, and specifically like in Alibaba, if you're looking for trades on the long side, I think both those present themselves without question, Danny, because the Chinese government basically pulled a Roberto Duran and said no mas. Yeah, and we're going into the year of the dragon, begins February 10th, and they need to start to do things, obviously, in order to uh, stimulate the economy. They've tried a couple things recently that haven't really worked. They're going to cut the reserve requirements. That's going to add a couple hundred billion. They're going to do a stock purchase plan, basically, to start buying stock. But again, you're looking at a stock market that has lost since 2021 around, what, $6 trillion mm-hmm. of market cap between China and Hong Kong. And so, yes, these kind of half a trillion dollar type programs, when you add them together, certainly are meaningful. But again, they're trying to stem the tide. And listen, in hindsight, I think we talked about it. If you take a shot on China on the long side, sure, they're trying to send a message that they care. They need to start to stimulate things because they have to just build confidence back. And they're probably sick and tired of the U.S. getting all the action. They, they miss being the sexiest game in town for sure. There's another way to look at it too, is like th- this is a problem of their own making. And we had this conversation on Fast Money the other night, Guy, the idea of repatriating $300 mm-hmm. billion dollars of these SOEs of their offshore funds and putting them into the stock market versus putting them into say the property market where we know that their consumer has a lot more exposure than they do to stocks. That would probably make more sense from a stabilization standpoint as it relates to consumer confidence and as it relates to just their economic well-being. But I also think this way, the geopolitical situation between us and China, and Guy, you've been talking about this for two years now, is not getting any better anytime soon, and clearly not during an election year here in the U.S. in 2024. So when I think about China as investable, I think what you're saying, Guy, and you made this point on a few occasions over the last few weeks or so, it's tradable. If you're looking at the investable assets or the tradable assets out there, you're looking at where sentiment got offsides, overly, let's say, pessimistic. In this case, clearly, this this sets up as something as a trade. But if you're a portfolio manager and you're looking at the globe and you're thinking about maybe this inflection point that the U.S. is, and at some point Europe is going to actually bottom out, right, from an economic standpoint, and that becomes more investable, and maybe that's a bit cheaper than here in the U.S., and you're looking at some emerging markets, China's just not going to be high on your list as far as to dig into. When you think about that, we saw a stat from Bespoke earlier that I think the Chinese percentage of investable equities globally is at a 17-year low. To your point, Danny, about losing $6 trillion or whatever. So the, the bloom is off the rose mm-hmm. there. I'm not sure it comes back in a meaningful way anytime soon. Guy. No, I'm not. Again, I want to be clear. In terms tradable of is what you're saying. Extraordinarily tradable. Yeah. And Alibaba, for example, I mean, this is a stock that made an all-time high, I think, October, around Halloween, boo, of 2020. Stock was trading north of $310. Recently, we got as low as 66 and a half or thereabouts. But what I'll tell you is along the way in those three and a half or four years ish, you've seen at least a half a dozen, if not more, 35 to 50% rallies in the name. And this is a stock that's been in a very precipitous bear market. But again, along the way, you've seen bounces. I would submit, and I'm putting it out there now, and if I'm wrong, you know, I'll be the first to say it, but I think we're on the precipice of that very same tradable bounce here in Alibaba. And if you want to cover all your bases, maybe the FXI, although I do think, Dan, you're going to get more bang of your buck out of BABA. Yeah, just one other thing I'll note is that there's obviously a short ban also in effect. We saw that in South Korea. You know, I think just China sending the signal that they care about the market, if you want to just take one step further, it's a positive for the U.S. markets in general. You would think that would coincide with something just being more capital markets mm-hmm. friendly. I'm not saying it's going to materialize. We think about the big banks and Goldman and Morgan Stanley that have the global presence. You could argue that, okay, 
they're going to be more pro-capital. I mean, obviously, they took over Hong Kong and basically kicked all the capital markets people out of there years ago. But you get my point. But I agree. It's probably short-lived. And I just think that they want to stake, put their flag in the ground and say, all right, just so you think we care, we do care about our market. So that's all that is. And let's think about this, Danny. You just mentioned that GDP print that came in hotter than people expected. We had PCE, which is basically in line, but it's not hot, if you will. So there's lots of like different economic cross currents that are affecting, let's say, uh, a sentiment towards our markets right here. And when you think about just this move that we've had out of such a small group of stocks just in January of this year, and you think about where we are. So next week, we have a Fed meeting. Expectations for a Fed move are not great at all, about 0% a chance of uh, a, a rate cut there. But as we think about March, that's come down. It was almost 80% of, of a 25 basis point cut. Now that's come down, if you're looking at the CME Fed Funds tracker, below 50% here. So it seems like we're in this kind of weird spot where yields have gone from 5% to 3.8% now at 4.15. The dollar has rallied a little bit, right? Crude oil is at $77. We were talking about crude at $70 just a couple weeks ago. So all of a sudden, there's a whole host, in my opinion, of headwinds towards equity valuations, okay, towards uncertainty about the the pace in which the Fed is going to cut. Remember about a month and a half ago, the markets were pricing in six cuts in 2024. That's been cut in half right now. So I say to myself, we're in earnings period. Next week, we have Alphabet. Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, and Apple, okay? So we know that those five stocks make up 20-some percent of the S&P 500. They're a disproportionate amount of the expected EPS growth that we're going to get in those sectors. I say to myself, are we an accident waiting to happen here? And maybe the money is flowing into China right now over the last couple of days. Maybe a guy is signaling that a little bit. I'm glad you brought yes, to answer, but I'm glad you brought up energy because last week, we saw, and I don't want to get too inside baseball here, so I apologize, but quickly, crude went backwardated for the first time in a while. That typically is a pretty bullish indication. To your point, we've seen probably, I don't know, 8 9% rally in the underlying commodity. So the OIH, for example, made a low in early 2020 of around $75. Since then, and you can look at this chart, a series of higher lows and higher highs. And you can look at a chart, and I think we just did exactly that about a week and a half or so ago when we traded down to about, I don't know, 285-ish. Now we're north of 300. I don't think, Danny Moses, that the market is paying enough attention to what Dan just talked about in terms of crude oil and the valuation around some of these stocks. Marathon Petroleum, MPC, effectively an all-time high. Phillips 66, PSX, effectively at an all-time high. So there are names that have done well, but the names that people are not paying attention to, Schlumberger, which has had a decent quarter, Exxon's going to report, ConocoPhillips, Chevron. I understand they traded a discount to the broader market, a steep discount, but the discount they're trading at right now doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Demo. A few of those big ones obviously have deals in the works that may or may not get approved. So you have kind of risk are people messing around in there. But I'm just one of these things where you put those big names away, you buy them and just put them away. You just made the comment, Dan did, that oils run from 70 to 77. You would think that the stocks would follow. And they are running a bit, but the big horses aren't moving as much as you would have thought. And I think a lot of the moves in the markets in general have been secular, not cyclical. What do I mean by that? 
historically all the interest rate sensitive things, and we're going to get into this obviously with Stephanie Link later, things like builders. Builders didn't get killed as much as you would thought when rates were going up because of the secular move into owning a home and moving out of the cities. The flip side is true also that as rates come down, you just saw DHI report and they're still having obviously concessions to start to move homes and so forth. They don't get the benefit as much. People thought that mortgage rates came down a percent. They should have seen a big upswing, less concessions. Not true. And when I think about energy in general, I think there's a secular play within the energy sector, which has been going on, which is the U.S. producing a ton, which is we don't have to rely on internationals much anymore. So you have the West Texas and the Brent. But more than that, if you're bullish again, I'll say this for the 50th time. If you're a soft landing person, I think you need to own energy. Now, with China doing the similar stuff, can it move the needle a little bit? Sure. But where these stocks trade relative to where I think oil is trading, to me, is still very cheap. And if you think the money is going to stay in the stock market, so even if you get a sell-off in some of these big tech names, where are they going to go? I think it's ripe to just stick into the energy sector and some of this stuff. I agree with you there. And you brought up home builders. And as you mentioned, we'll talk to Stephanie about that. However, it's fascinating. I just want to spend a minute on this, Dan. We were very constructive on home builders all through 2022 and into 2023. What we said was, and I remember this, there'll be a point in the 10-year yield where yields move up to a level where home builders no longer like that. And it turned out to happen somewhere in July or so of last year, when I think 10-year yields got to about 465 or so. And that was a precipice. That was a boiling point for home builders. And they sold off dramatically into the fall. Of course, then what happened? Interest rates continue to go higher. They peaked in, I don't know, October, November, mm-hmm. 5%. Then you saw a huge move lower in yields, and that's when home builders have taken off. So to that extent, it was a rate story. However, this is just my opinion. In 2024, I think it's going to be not as much a rate story as it is an employment story. And Danielle DiMartino Booth, who does extraordinary work, we should actually have her yeah. on our podcast She came out a couple days ago. I actually watched it, and I'm going to quote from her. Every state except Texas has seen a rising unemployment rate. Based on data going back to 1976, once all 50 states are seeing that, it typically leads to a recession. I'm just putting it at that because I said this many months ago. I said, keep an eye on what's going on in California. You saw a dramatic increase in their unemployment rate. And what I said then was California typically leads the broader United States by six to nine months. Now you're seeing the rest of the country sort of catch up. It's not manifesting itself in the data that we see every month, but it's certainly out there. So if unemployment goes higher, Danny Moses, which I think it will in a market fashion, I think you've got to avoid the home builders in a major way. Thoughts on that? People should go back and listen to the interview with Ivy Zellman a couple of weeks ago. And the stocks historically trade anywhere from 0.5 times book to two times book. They trade anywhere from 10 times earnings to 20 times earnings. We've been in the upper levels of those for quite some time. We mentioned that there was a deal in the marketplace last week and M&A took place at 1.4 times book. And a lot of home builders, obviously, staying the obvious, is localized markets where you are. You just mentioned some builders may be exposed to various states that are slowing, some are growing. So it became very secular in that regard. So they're always great trading vehicles, the same way that semiconductors, when they were cyclical, and I say were, because we are now experiencing a secular uptick in the whole group now because this whole AI craze, what happens when secular, and I love to get Dan's thoughts on this, anniversary, they become cyclical. So mm-hmm. at some point, this great movement of this AI craze, and so that's what we're dealing with. And that's great. If you can find a secular growth area, I talk about online gambling from time to time, run with it and find the best companies within there. Here's the problem. 
when you buy companies at elevated prices for a theme, when is the sell point? To the point you just made, Guy, when these stocks start to sell off, where do you buy more? Mm-hmm. Where do you say, oh, because it's down 10%? It's, that's what my problem is. That's not being bearish. That's being practical. So you people make a big move real quick in these stocks, take some stuff off the table and throw it into some other cheaper names, maybe in other sectors and diversify out because you own a lot of the same theme. You may think you're diversified within tech. I guarantee the factors and the momentum and stuff you own basically one big stock. Yeah, well, you, you do. And when you think about just, you know, again, this goes back to those top five or six names and, and the disproportionate amount of earnings contribution, right, to the S&P 500. And then obviously from a market cap weighted, and I think this is one of the big myths, you know, that kind of permeated the markets over the last kind of month or so until really we just saw some of these stocks just take off again that were doing a lot of the heavy lifting last year that the, the stock market was broadening out, right? In some way, this was going to be a healthy thing to have less reliance on Microsoft and Apple and NVIDIA and some of these other names. To me, I, I just think, again, you could throw your energy in there. You could throw your home builders. You could throw a bunch of other sectors in there. They just don't add up. If you have this sort of broadening out, you can throw small caps in there. It's just not going to do the job. If there are any shifts in the fundamentals of these large companies that have basically traded now the stocks at levels that we have not seen in a very long time because the promise of a massive secular shift that's going to take a decade or so to really materialize and work its way into the broader economy, much like the internet and e-commerce and a lot of those sorts of technologies, the promise of them in the late 90s, it took many years to materialize. So I just think the pull forward and the enthusiasm around those really make us prone to a mistake in the markets here when you have the sort of performance that we've had in such a short period of time. I want to make one other point. If I'm just looking at year to date right now, if I look at the sectors and I'm just looking at those XL sector mm-hmm. ETFs, okay? So the top performing on the month is the XLK. We get it. We know what is in there. That's technology. Communication services, again, up 5%. Same thing. And if also you look at them on a one-year basis, they're also the biggest performers over the last year, up 50% and 40% respectively. Then if you go down to the bottom, okay, so what has acted the worst over the last month or so or year to date? It's utilities, it's real estate, it's basic materials, it's energy. And those were also some of the worst performing, okay, over the last year or so too. And what's interesting to me is the ones on the bottom, the worst performers, are more reflective about what might be going on in the economy. Speaking to what Guy's point is about the one confounding thing, why we didn't get a recession last year. Why? Because unemployment never got towards 4%. Mm-hmm. Because the consumer that you made this point, Guy, a thousand times, as long as I've been doing fast money with you over the last 15 years, okay, as long as they keep spending, that is just basically an overlay for the stock market, an overlay for people's perception of the economy. So if we can't figure out, and listen, you and I don't want unemployment to go much higher. No. We thought the Fed did, and that's why they, they wanted to cool the economy, but they seem to be okay with it right here. Well, I said the Fed wants it higher is because I thought that was the last piece of the puzzle Correct. in order to get the inflation level where they need it to be. I'm still not convinced that they don't want it higher to cool things down and to take what's been a very tight job market and sort of cool it off. Label me surprised that it's been as resilient as it has. Also note that I think 11 months in a row now, we've seen revisions to the downside in terms of some of these job numbers. It's not apples to apples, but it's important to point out. And in terms of XLK, I'm so happy you mentioned that because you say, okay, this is an ETF. 44% of the XLK is Microsoft and Apple. The next biggest holding in the XLK is Broadcom, at five and a half percent. So if you own the XLK, you basically own two stocks, which has been 
fantastic. Yep. Keep in mind, and Danny talks about this all the time, you have to know what you own with some of these ETFs. Congrats to Microsoft on eclipsing the $3 trillion market cap mark. Just to put in perspective what you guys are talking about, the bottom 200 names in the S&P 500 are under $3 trillion combined. Microsoft is bigger now mm -hmm. than the bottom 200 of 500. So just put that in perspective on kind of where we are, because I know we're going to talk about a name in the second that is officially out of whatever the seven things were, but just put that in perspective. Before we go to that, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up a couple things. The first one, if you listen to Peter Bookvar, he's been on our podcast, he's written about it, but Japan has been off to the races. And Danny, you've opined and you've been right on this. It's really fascinating to see what's happened over the last year. And I'm not going to get too into the weeds here, but dollar yen, the dollar rallied against the yen in a meaningful way. And it made a lot of sense. Got up to 152 and every alarm bell in the world went off. And I think basically the Bank of Japan and Japan at large sort of got the message and tried to figure things out. And the dollar yen then basically retreated down about 140. Very quietly, the dollar is back on its horse in terms of strength against the yen. What I think is the back of the fact that they can't really get out of this negative interest rate policy. Now, with that said, if you've owned Japanese stocks over the last year, you've done extraordinarily well. But in terms of that signs that I started with, I think there's another sign manifesting itself in Japan. Thoughts on that? Global central banks, let's take this in order. China's stimulus over the last couple weeks, right? Bank of Japan, they're going to keep their negative interest rate policy at least for another meeting. They're admitting that inflation is starting to creep up to a level where they can potentially take some stimulus away, but they didn't do it. So that's a positive. ECB today did confirm that they'll probably start cutting rates in July, and they are confirming that things are slowing economically. So they're coming. And then we got the Fed next week. So still that global central bank coordination. And the reason it will matter at some point when Bank of Japan decides to take their foot off of the gas here to a degree. And Peter Bookvar, you know, has been saying buy Japanese banks for a long time. They're the possible beneficiary of money repatriating out of the U.S. Treasury mm -hmm. market, which we've seen bits and pieces of back into their world. And so kind of a pro-cyclical move there. So certainly something to keep an eye on. But again, it all goes back to one thing. The amount of liquidity still around globally matters. And until that really changes, and we haven't really seen an indication of that as much, I think we're in this world of just cash sloshing around. Yeah, cash sloshing around. And that I guess that's a good segue to, to maybe Tesla in, in a way, because that company reported Wednesday after the close. Today, again, we're Thursday into the close. The stock hasn't seen an uptick all day long. It's down nearly 13%. It's trading down 30% just over the last month and a half or so. And even some of the big bulls on the street are, are calling the conference call a train wreck, calling the results. Operating margins were a disaster. The auto gross margin was a little better than expected, but gross margins remain 8% below their peak from a year and a half ago or so. They keep talking about there's no shortage of demand for their cars. It really is a function of, let's say, where interest rates are and the affordability of their cars. I don't really believe that, Danny. I think you probably agree with me on that front. But a lot of folks were really disappointed and expectations, let's be clear, were not high heading into the print. The stock was down 20%, okay, heading into the print. We'd already had the Q4 deliveries, which came in line. They didn't really answer any of the questions as it relates to the here and now about the elasticity of kind of the number of price cuts that they've had and what that's done to margins and, and really has not stimulated a whole heck of a lot of demand. And all these analysts that have been really enthusiastic about robots, about AI, about all these other things that make this not an auto story, they seem pretty disappointed. One of them was Adam Jonas from Morgan Stanley. Dan Ives from over at Wedbush seemed also pretty disappointed. And these are two of the biggest bulls on the street. Even your friend Gary Black, who I, I honestly would love to 
have on this podcast. We've reached out to him a couple times. So if anybody knows Gary and you're listening to him, and Gary, I think, is a really sensible guy as it comes to the story here. But the disconnect is the future and what is promised and what the market is willing to pay for this sort of stuff right now. And I'm just going to say, as a group, I think we've been all over this story. We've had it pegged. When no one wanted to believe how low margins could go, what the demand situation looked like, Elon and, and some of the issues that he has had attracting new customers to the brand and to the story. It's coming unwound right now. And the last thing I'll just say, Danny, is that at some point, there's going to be a story next week if this stock continues to go lower about margin calls on Elon's stock in Tesla, what he pledged to buy Twitter. That's going to become a story again. And there might be another leg lower here. And if that conference call was as bad as I thought it was listening to it and some of the commentators that I heard who are predisposed to be positive on the stock, then the story is not getting better anytime soon. And if a recession or some sort of economic situation that is adverse to them happens, or maybe it's Trump keeps moving up higher in the polls and the likelihood of these credits, right? Like or it start going away. And that might be one of the things here. I just don't see the story getting better before it gets worse. Thoughts there, Danny, on, on the, the whole Tesla story? Because to me, and we've been saying this now for two years, that this was the biggest meme stock in a meme market, right? And until this thing comes undone, I don't think we're going to have the market come undone the way it should. So short interest was the lowest going to that print that it was since July. July was the first kind of swoons of the earnings that went on in the second quarter, right? So we're down to 80 million. So the setup was obviously not as short. It's less than one day's outstanding volume. So that wasn't a positive going in. So you think about people, oh, I hate short sellers. They're the buyers of the stock. So that's one. Two, the market cap it's lost today is the equivalent of Ford and GM's market caps combined. Ford and GM are 93 billion. I think as we see it here today, Tesla's lost roughly 87 billion. I want to note those two things. Third point, I thought the conference call, I'm not just saying because the stock was down, wasn't bad. Meaning I think they were the most honest that they've been in the times that I've been following Tesla, just because the analysts didn't get what they wanted. Because Adam Jonas's first question was, when are you going to have another AI day in 2024? I thought that could be very beneficial. His second question, will you partner up with a Chinese competitor? He didn't ask anything about margins, nothing about the cut in forecast for deliveries for the first time in a long time. And it has been looking like this for some time. As we've been talking about it, it's looking more and more like an auto company. And if I take Adam Jonas's ridiculous targets, let me just piece it apart here. His target on just the auto business alone. So let's remove everything else is $75 on the stock. And you know what that is based upon? 2,030 EBITDA numbers discounted back. So let me just put that in perspective. So we sit here now and it's looking more and more like an auto company. They give you no reason to believe that there's anything else coming. They're going to ramp up. Guess what? If you ramp up Giga Austin, that's going to cost a lot of money. They acknowledge what we've been talking about, labor costs, right? They're going to pay more now across the board. So Dan, to your point, if, if the economy is teetering here, it maybe doesn't get much better from here. Forget about rates for a minute and uh, people, you know, monthly payments that Musk mentioned again about all this stuff. I just think it's becoming evident. And when you see things like NVIDIA and IBM and Netflix, you can own a piece of technology with all this group of tech, find something cool there that's cheaper than Tesla and go own GM or Ford, which is trading at single digit PE and not mess around with all this other crap not to mention the corporate governance, not to mention all the other stuff that's going on. And just so shareholders out there understand, whether you like shareholder service companies like ISS, this is about his ownership to ISS as ISIS last night. Okay, he made a reference. Just so we're on the same page as a shareholder of this company, what he thinks about you and your rights. So, Guy, 
Give us your thoughts here, because I know you've been talking about the margins and what this thing's going to look like over a long period well, of time. Well, you know, so. I'm glad you mentioned that. And this is something that Dan talks about. But to me, many stories. I think margins are one of the top two or three most important things. And a lot of people, the Bulls thought we had a trough margins two quarters ago. That proved to be incorrect. And I think the stock is paying for it now. But let's just go back, because when fundamentals matter, Dan, as you say, this is when the stock sells off. Four quarters today was the fourth quarter, I think, or they reported their fourth quarter. First quarter after earnings, the stock was down nine and three quarter percent. The second quarter, down nine and three quarter percent. The third quarter, down 9.3 percent. And today, obviously, north of 10 percent. So, Dan, the point you've been making is the times that fundamentals matter in this stock, and historically it's four, maybe a few more a year, the stock doesn't trade particularly well. Yeah, and I guess there's is an interesting juxtaposition what's happened over the last year where NVIDIA has gone from like a $300 billion market cap to like basically $1.5 trillion, okay? And Tesla over the last two years has gone from $1.2 trillion now to about a half a trillion. And think about these two different CEOs and think about the messaging that they have about these massive secular shifts that they believe that they're on the cusp of, okay? And think about Jensen Wang over at NVIDIA and how he manages the street, how he manages expectations, how he manages not just his own customers, but also he has all the same geopolitical issues. Think about the pressure that he has selling his product that people are double and triple ordering to sell to a huge end market, which would be China. Okay. And the hoops that they've had to go through to massage that while Elon, on the flip side of that, has done everything in his power just to be able to have access to the the consumer in China, to manufacturing in China, to rare earth materials in China and the like here. And and you could make the argument, what has gone on here is as genius as everybody thinks Elon is, he has miscalculated on a massive level this reliance on China. They are getting their lunch eaten in China right now. That's just a fact by the competition there. And when you think about Jensen Wang and his ability to navigate the situation with China and probably a situation that doesn't get any better for them anytime Mm -hmm. soon. Now, the one thing I would say is that, okay, NVIDIA, I wouldn't buy it with your money right here. And I did go on TV three weeks ago when the stock was 490 and said this thing is likely to break out and you're going to want to own this thing into some of their biggest customers' earnings reports. And those are all going to be next week. That's Meta, it's Microsoft, it's a whole host of others. But I wouldn't own it here anymore. That stock has gone from 490 to 620 in a straight line here. It's gained $300 billion in market cap. So again, I think it's important to juxtapose some of these situations. This is how we think of stocks. This is how we think think about trading setups is how we think about secular shifts in a way. NVIDIA is going to remain a great story, but trust me, at some point in the next two years, that stock's going to get cut in half. It's just going to happen. And I don't think you want to be buying it up here on the hope that all of this other stuff goes as well as it has over the last year. The one thing which is always hard to price is Elon Musk's value as a brand, Mm -hmm. him as a brand, Tesla as a brand. Forget about politics for a minute. Just all the stuff that's gone on, how he treats workers, how he's treated shareholders. I think it's really starting to have an impact. And so that's always been that type of variable. But think about becoming immune to the news story. We're going to launch a new vehicle in 2025. People saw right through that. The cost to do that and build a new vehicle and whatever it's going to take to build a prototype and all that, people saw through that. There's no more benefit of the doubt here. Could the stock bounce back up to 220, 230? Sure. Large call buying going on. Some Something happens on the EV credit world. I don't know. They partner up and license their FSD beta crap to somebody. Sure. You got to be smart about how you trade this. But I do believe that we are now in motion 
to work its way towards what will be an auto company over time. So, so that's a really great point, Danny. And there's a headline hitting the screens right now. Cruz's California suspension was a result of a self-inflicted wound. A report relates to its holding of a car hitting a pedestrian. Uh, and I think this is interesting. So this is GM. And this is going back to what you're talking about. And I actually wanted to disagree with you a little bit. Is If you love the promise of Tesla and full self-driving and an EV world and this and that or whatever, you don't want to buy GM. You do not want to buy GM because if anything, they've self-inflicted wounded themselves again and again over the last 10 years. To me, there's other cases why you could make why you should own GM, but it's not to get a little of the Tesla pixie dust because Ford and GM have done a really bad job here. But it is interesting that Elon said this and he said it really in a cavalier sort of man on the call. He said, yeah, we should be getting calls from these traditional automakers about licensing our full self-driving because it's that much better. And listen, maybe that is the reason why this has 10x the market cap or enterprise value let's say, of a GM or a Ford, because it is a software opportunity. It's not really a manufacturing opportunity. And listen, they go out of their way to talk about how they have basically made more cars in North America than many of the others. And they're doing a great job on many fronts. It's just not relative to the valuation that it has and the promise, especially given to where they are in these waves of cycles and waves that they're talking about as far as innovation. And it seems like they are going to be in a really difficult spot for the balance of the year. And I'm not sure the valuation even down here warrants what's about to go on for the rest of the year. Before we get to the league where they play for pay, oh, yeah. by the way, Danny, given how many games are left in the season, there are three games left, right? If, I, if my math serves me, you are guaranteed to be north of 500. So congratulations. <laughs> but oh, for a long time, and I just want to sort of end my segment with this. For the longest time, I thought that Bitcoin was just an overlay in terms of interest rates and the Fed and those types of things. And I will tell you, that view has been galvanized over the last month or so when, again, as rates cratered lower, that coincided with Bitcoin getting on its horse. I think it top ticked at 50,000 around the same time that 10-year yields traded down to 380-ish. Now, people will say, wait a second, what about the ETF? I get it. So there was news associated but I don't think it's coincidental, Dan, and then we'll move on from this, that Bitcoin has gone from, I think, a 50,000 print briefly yeah. to sub 40,000 as 10-year yields have gone from 380 to 415. So if you're looking for clues, if you're in that Bitcoin world, I think it's just as easy as your view on U.S. interest rates. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think we've been pretty fair, and I know, Danny, you've been in this camp too, is like all of a sudden you've had in the last few years a trillion-dollar asset class that a lot of macro folks think is tied to a lot of the sorts of things that they like to trade in and around, right? And think about correlations and the like here, and they've had more and more ways to trade it, which has been a big part of the story. Why did we have that move from, let's say, 35000 up north of 45000 It was excitement in and around spot Bitcoin ETF. ETFs, right? And so that was also in and around the time where we had rates coming in fairly quickly. I think that move from 5% down to 3.8 was quicker than most people expected and not the sort of thing you see in a 10-year. And macro investors are looking for different ways to play those sorts of things. And the more instruments you have to play them, the easier it is. And the longevity of this asset class is becoming, I think, a bit more cemented, Danny, if that makes some sense. Yeah. And I think when you look at the proxies of how people played Bitcoin that didn't maybe own Bitcoin directly was they owned a little Coinbase. They had some micro strategies. They had some grayscale, right? They owned stock in those things. And so the proxy you just mentioned, there's now 10 different ways to get your quote exposure. So I think we went from strong hands, right? 
to weaker hands. What does that mean? Once you sell Bitcoin, it's, it's not as arduous, I should say, of, of selling the actual token itself. And maybe I'm speaking way out of line here. But all of a sudden, I'm facing BlackRock and Fidelity and Franklin, which I'd much rather face because I feel like, okay, they know what they're doing. It's going to be safer there. And I think that creates a little bit more volatility. Not a Bitcoin bear, not a Bitcoin bull, but I do expect this thing to stabilize at some point. But I just think we've had a shift from strong hands to not as strong hands over the last couple of weeks with the advent of these ETFs. As we head to Miami Beach, we've reached championship weekend in the league where they play for pay. As I mentioned, Danny is insured to have a record north of 500 as he comes into this weekend's slate of games with a record of 30 and 25. I would say off of last year, well done by you. Two games this weekend, fascinating games. I think the Ravens-Chiefs game is as interesting a football game as we've seen for a while. And I think unless you're a San Francisco 49er, die-in-the-wolf fan, the entire country is rooting for Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions. Danny Moses. I'm 6-1 in my last seven games, and I would tell you I have a rule. When Patrick Mahomes is getting points, you take him. I don't care if it's one point, three points. So he's getting three and a half at Baltimore. You have to take him. So that's one pick. The other pick, obviously, it's setting up nicely for Detroit, I believe, getting seven points in San Francisco. Debo Samuel, first of all, if he doesn't play, that line should be four. If he does play, I don't think he's 100%. Campbell's a pretty aggressive guy. I'm sure they'll find a way to get into that shoulder at some point in the first couple of plays, knowing that guy. I'm taking both underdogs here. And let's also keep in mind, while I think Baltimore may end up winning that game, not covering, that hard rock bet, which was voided on me, was indeed... Baltimore versus Detroit in the Super Bowl, <laughs> Baltimore winning for 500 to one. So if you want to believe in faith that I won't cash that ticket, you should go buy that ticket right now at six to one because I'm going to get screwed on it regardless. So there you go, guys. That was a fun conversation, but stick around because we're going to have an additional fun conversation with Stephanie Link of Hightower Advisors. See you on the other side. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. 
In today's hyper-fast markets, it's never been more important to consider every option to raise capital, drive growth, and create value. Stay one step ahead with Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets. In this season, RBC's experts will examine how corporates and investors are evaluating their strategic plans, reassessing their portfolios, and reallocating capital to help them lead today and define tomorrow. Tune in to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast. Uh, welcome back to the On The Tape podcast. Now, I've said this before, Dan, but there may be new viewers and or listeners to the podcast. So I'll mention this. CNBC is on all day from 5 a.m. basically to 8 o'clock, let's say. Brian Sullivan finishes show at 8 o'clock. It's all live programming, and it's great. But every once in a while, somebody appears on the network where your antennae go up and you turn the volume up because this person is on the network. And once again, we're lucky enough to have Stephanie Link join us. She is one of those people, Dan, and I'm going to read her title. Chief Investment Strategist and Head of Investment Solutions at Hightower Advisors. Stephanie, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Happy the, New Year. I think I can still say that. You No, you're doing that just upset me, but that's fine. That's all good. I mean, I'll roll with it. So I will tell you, and I'm sincere when I say that, and you know that I am. I obviously watch you when you're on the air. A lot of the things that you thought would happen in 2023 came to fruition. I'll say a lot of the things that you were talking about, I didn't really necessarily agree with. It doesn't matter. That's what make markets. But 2023 treated you, I think, very well. 2024, obviously, off to a pretty interesting year. So my first question to you is, does the early strength this year, and it could be a combination of the two, scare you or encourage you? (laughs) The MAG-7 and the resurgence after they took a little bit of a pause at the end of last year, the resurgence so far this year is a little bit unnerving. I really hope we don't have another year where you have such a dominance in such a small amount of companies. I don't think we're going to see that though, Guy and, and Dan. I mean, I really think that the economy is better than people thought. Most people thought by now, a year ago, they thought by now we'd be in a recession. And in fact, we actually did the opposite. We accelerated in growth most of the year. And I think that momentum is continuing in this year, and we got some interesting PMI data today, not only in services, which we know has been strong, but now you have manufacturing that's actually starting to show signs of life. And I think if the economy can hang in there to two and a half percent kind of GDP, as inflation comes down, I think you're going to have some pretty decent earnings. And we all know that stocks follow earnings on the way up and on the way down. And I think we're going to see earnings revised higher and it's going to be throughout the other sector. So it'll still stay within technology. And we can discuss if you think there are over overbought and they're expensive or not, it'll stay in technology, but I think it's also going to expand out into some really maybe not as popular sectors like financials and energy and industrials. Steph, that has to be the bull case, right? If you look in where the concentration of S&P earnings are for 2024, there are very top heavy relative to the stocks that that did all the heavy lifting in the S&P last year. They probably helped avert a recession for 2023, which was the consensus coming into that year. And I just wonder, if the consensus now is for a soft landing, that estimates for earnings up, let's call it close to double digits, seems to be baked in the cake with the S&P at all-time highs, and we're comfortable with 19 and a half times forward earnings and the like. I look at what's happened so far in January, and I say NVIDIA now is a $1.5 trillion market cap company that's up 25% of the year. Microsoft is now a $3 trillion market cap company that's up 7% of the year. Google is at an all-time high, up 7%. Meta's up 10% 
2% nearing $1 trillion. The concentration that you're worried about seems to be getting more acute in a way, right? And then the fact that we have so much fabulous performance in such a short period of time makes me a little nervous about the consensus for a soft landing, the consensus for 10% earnings growth. You just said 2% GDP growth. The Fed's pointing to 1.4% for this year. To me, accidents seem very likely to happen when we least expect them right now, when people are the most complacent. I totally agree with you that soft landing is consensus. That wasn't the case last year at this time at all. I was not calling for a recession. I was calling for slower growth. We obviously, what I mentioned earlier, we actually saw acceleration. I do worry, Dan, that it is soft landing is consensus, but the facts are the data continues to show pretty good signs of momentum in the economy. We all point to jobs. You had the lowest weekly initial jobless claims last week since the second lowest since 1969. I don't know if any of us were born but then. I'm going to just get, say we weren't just for fun. But I think that if you look at the four-week moving average of uh, initial claims, and I do that because it's more of a smoothing mechanism, you're at 202,000 on weekly initial jobless claims. Recession, typically, you see that number at 350 to 375,000. So we are far cry off from a recession or even slowing down of jobs. Why is that important? Because the wage number, it will remain elevated. 4% is pretty good. It's way better than the historical average of 2 And Why are those two things important? Jobs and wages, it's because obviously it helps the consumer, which is 70% of the U.S. economy. And why that's important is that a lot of the growth has come on services, which I definitely think is a consensus long, and that is 75% of consumption. We root for consumer, we root for services. But I actually am starting to think we're going to see a little bit more of a tick up in the goods part of the economy. We know we've seen real disinflation there. And I do think you're starting to see pockets. I will name Costco for one. Yes, Guy is one of favorite all-time favorite names, I know. And last month, the company saw a 100 basis point acceleration in same-store sales from the first quarter. But if you look and dig in deeper, goods and discretionary, rather, was up 400 basis points in an acceleration. It's just one company. It's just one example. But I do think you're going to see a consumer that remains pretty strong. They have $4.1 trillion in savings. And I think that we are a nation of spenders. And so as long as that stays okay, I think we'll be fine. Now, the only other one thing I would mention is add on the manufacturing renaissance that we're seeing in pockets of the industrial economy, meaning onshoring, reshoring, that's a pretty big deal too. And so if we can see the economy stay about two, two and a half percent, I think that's good enough for five, six, seven percent in top line. And then you talk about 19 times forward estimates. If you exclude MAG7, you're at about 17 times. That's not cheap. But I have financials that are at 12 times, and I've got industrials that are at 15 times, and I have energy stocks that are, my gosh, are like nine times. So I think there are places within the economy that maybe tech doesn't you know, take off. I'm, I'm hoping that we do see this broadening, but I think we have enough evidence that there are some other sectors that can maybe offset if we do see a pause in some of the maximum. What do you make of the bond move? Because I will tell you that, you know, I was one of the people last year that thought rates could go higher. I, I didn't necessarily think we were going to get north of 5%, but we did. And I definitely didn't see uh, a move from 5% down to 3.8%. But here we are sitting here today, let's just call 10 years around 4.15%. How important are yields in terms of some of the thesis you have and some of the ideas you have for sectors? And I still think there's an outside chance it yields surprise to the upside, but I'm not naive enough to think we can't go lower from here. So how important are yields? 
Meals are, are, are very important. And I'm glad that we're off from that five plus percent on the 10 year. I'm not so sure we're going to get, actually, I am pretty sure we're not going to get six cuts. Uh, I think that's what the bond market is telling you. When we went from five to three and a half, it was six, seven cuts and it was like euphoria, which is ridiculous. The Fed is not going to go six because they didn't just spend the last 18 months raising rates to get things to slow down a little bit and to get inflation back to a somewhat normal levels. I think it's going to be hard to go from a three, four CPI to a two. We're going to get core PCE on Friday. That'll be interesting to see. But I think it's going to be hard because we have wages and rents that are still pretty sticky. But even if you get to like sub three, two and a half, three in inflation, then the Fed can do their thing, maybe just wait a little bit. And maybe they go three times. But I think that the, the movement in the bond market is really telling you that we got a little bit too excited about so many cuts. And now we're maybe normalizing that to two or three cuts. I was on the road, you guys, last week uh, visiting with advisors. There are some people that think that we're not going to get any cuts this year. And I'm sure I don't think the market's pricing that in at all. But I think the bond market's telling you inflation's coming down, but it's going to stay elevated. You sit at a really interesting intersection. Obviously, all the work that you do on CNBC, you're speaking to a retail investor, you're speaking to a self-directed investor, you're speaking, obviously, at Hightower to a lot of really sophisticated advisors. Guy and I have met a bunch of them through some of the events that you've done in, in a way. And, and then we have this whole other group, the real fancy class of investors that we know plenty of them in the hedge funds and the mutual funds and the like. And it's interesting that you mention what expectations are for what the Fed dot plots are and then what kind of got worked into the markets. And the markets sometimes have this way of trying to bully, right, like the thought process or sentiment in and around it. So when I hear a lot of smart people like yourself say, we're not going to get the five or six cuts that the market was expecting. And really, if you think about what the Fed has said since that mid-December meeting and what they're likely to say next week, it's likely to be a bit more hawkish than at least the market was pricing not too long ago. But then I say to myself, what do risk assets do in a stagflationary environment? Because if we don't get the sort of cuts that the market was pricing a few weeks ago, right, in both the bond market and the equity markets, then I say to myself, if PCE and CPI and these things don't come fast enough lower to the sorts of levels that would justify five or six cuts. And I know there's a lot here, but stay with me here. So then I say to myself, are we likely to find ourselves in a position where the growth doesn't get to as low as the Fed thinks, but maybe it's not nearly as high as what happened in 2023. And then inflation doesn't come down fast enough. And we're just stuck with a Fed funds that is in and around 5% for a while. At some point, Stocks are not going to like that. I, they just can't. And I'm just curious how you're thinking about that because, again, you already talked about unemployment and we're starting to see some of these big companies cut again. If you notice that on the tech side a little bit, eBay's up today because they're cutting jobs. We saw Google is continuing to cut jobs. I just feel like we could be in a situation where it's maybe the opposite of Goldilocks, but it's not something that equities have had to price in a very long time. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First and foremost, eBay is the distant number like fifth player in the industry. So they've had a lot of problems. And I know you could probably throw in PayPal as well. I mean, I think companies that are struggling are going to continue to struggle and they have to cut costs because that's what US corporations do. Google is a different animal. Are they overspent? for years. They're overspending by a mile. I am not crazy about hearing about layoffs, but I wonder if some of those layoffs are getting moved around to focus more on kind of the AI initiatives and that sort of thing. But your point is well taken. It's not perfect. The market is pricing in. If 
by definition, soft landing is Goldilocks, right? So there's a lot that can happen. There's a lot in terms of internationally that can happen. But at the same time, here's where I stand. Like whether we cut six times or three times or two times or one time, we're ending that cycle of raising rates. And then you listen to it, Lagarde, right, from ECB. You look at what they're going to do, what they're saying. So Europe is in the kind of, we're getting close to starting to cut. What did we hear about overnight in China? China all of a sudden is reflating their economy and they have a long way to go. And we don't even know. It's a hot mess over there. I get it. But the point being is you actually now can maybe say that 2024 is going to be a global easing cycle. And I don't know if many people are really even paying attention to that. And we all know we've been in this business long enough to know you don't fight the Fed and you don't fight central global central bankers. And if they're starting to ease or at least taking their foot off the gas in terms of tightening, then I think that's sort of interesting. Now your question is, what does that do if we continue to grow about two, two and a half, three percent or whatever. Does that actually keep inflation high? It probably does. But we have come a very long way in terms of inflation. We were at a peak of 9.1% a year and a half ago, and we're now at 3.4. And so we can stay at 3.4. Maybe the Fed, they don't do too much in terms of rate cuts, but you're ending the aggressive cycle of tightening. And I think that is very powerful. And I would just say one last thing in terms of growth. We put 60% of US GDP in the form of monetary and fiscal policies in May of 2020 because we closed the country down. Just by perspective, 2008, the great financial crisis, and it was a crisis. We had banks, big banks that failed. We put 5% of US GDP in place. 60% was put in place three and a half years ago. It takes that long to get that money into the economy, into the system. And then last year, we put past another $2 trillion in infrastructure. That hasn't even gotten into the economy. And so I do think that you are going to see better growth, not going to be runaway growth, but better growth. And that, again, sets you up. As long as inflation kind of stays around here, it sets you up for, for pretty decent positive operating leverage. Let's get a little sector specific. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying most of 2022 and most of last year, you know, we were pretty constructive on the home builders. So one of the things that I thought, Steph, was 10-year yields would get to a point where home builders no longer would be viewed as favorable trades alongside. And that probably happened, I don't know, mid-summer, early August, when I think 10-year yields probably breached 4.6 as we were going higher. Obviously, they started to cascade lower as moved to 5%. But when yields moved from 5% back down below 4 you've seen these things off to the races. So in a large part, there were rate stories. Maybe there still are rate stories. We heard something out of DHI earlier this week. The stock went from, I think, 158, an all-time high, down to 140. It's still been an amazing company to own, as the rest of them have been. However, is it still a rate story, or is it now more of an employment story? Now, I know you're optimistic in terms of unemployment, but if you believe the unemployment rate can start ticking higher, what are home builders look like to you through the lens that you look at? I like housing. Housing is one of my favorite themes for 2024. Not so much the home builders guy, more like the home improvement companies, the Home Depot and Lowe's particular, because they did nothing last year, while the home builders actually were off to the races. DR Fortin, it was up 55% headed into the print. The expectations were enormous. And they were one of the groups from the October lows that led the markets higher. And so they were really high expectations. When you have 35% order growth, though, that's impressive. When you have deliveries going up 
for the full year. That's impressive. And I think they had to actually keep incentives high because when the 30-year fix got close to 8%, they had to offer more incentives. So that's why gross margins were actually so disappointing. I think with rates coming down from eight to six and a half, uh, you have seen activity improve. You have seen for the last six weeks, mortgage applications rise. But then I'm also step back and say, okay, structurally, D.R. Horton will tell you, Lennar will tell you, Toll Brothers will tell you, they have underproduced for the last 13 years. We're 5 million homes short in this country, and we have 5 million millennials that are about to buy homes for the first time ever. Structurally, I think that this industry is in a good shape. I don't want to chase the things that have already moved so far, so fast. D.R. Horton were to come down with a 10%, I sure would. But I think something like a Home Depot, which is a sleeper, I think that's interesting as they they start to see easy comparisons throughout this year. And you know their profitability. No one better in that industry that does it. Let's just say rates don't come down as much as the market thinks, but we are going to be in kind of weaker or a rate cutting cycle, if you will. Would you expect, let's say, consumer staples, utilities, some other sectors that as rates went higher towards the end of last year, before that precipitous drop, they were getting hit pretty hard, right? In, in, in Q, late Q3, um, early Q4. Are you looking at staples to maybe like get back in the game here? Is that something that interests you? Maybe some utilities, some of the unloved sectors of 2023? Utilities are certainly interesting as rates come down. Everyone was working that as rates went higher, obviously they have a lot of debt on their balance sheets and the CapEx levels and that sort of thing was in question. But I think they are interesting and they are cheap. Staples, not so much. I don't. I have a hard time finding any staple stock other than Target, which is not really a staple, but it's part, put into the staples ETF. But other than that one, I mean, it's really hard to find something that's really cheap. But here's something interesting. Procter & Gamble reported yesterday, organic growth was fine at 4%. It was on the low end, actually. But because of what we just talked about, lower inflation and pricing power, as well as better productivity from technology, they actually put up a 520 year-over-year basis point improvement in margins. So that operating leverage was so huge. And that's why the stock was up 5%. So it's interesting to watch some of these staples. I just don't think they're cheap enough. Back to utilities, one name that I have been buying and I, one name I really a lot is Qantas Services. They're about 70% of their cu uh, customers are utilities. So to the extent you think that utilities are going to continue to put money into CapEx, that they will benefit. That being said, it's a real play onshoring, reshoring in the grid. And we've been talking about the grid for years and how our nation, we need to improve it. We're like two blackouts away in Texas or California that people are going to start to panic. And so I think you're going to start to see infrastructure spend continue in that area. And that's an area I like an awful lot within the industrial complex. So Steph, you just mentioned like a proctor or some of the staples are not cheap enough. Like in this environment that we're in right now, okay, so we clearly have gotten comfortable with a 19 and a half times S&P 500, which is above the five and 10 year averages. And, and, and when you think about where yields were for that period of time, they were lower. Okay. How important is valuation right now? As a commentator, let's divorce yourself from the kind of practitioner thing. When you go on TV and, and Guy and I, we struggle with this sometimes because we have frameworks that we like to work on. Does it matter? Because an Apple is now at best a mid single digits earnings 
and sales grower, but trades at a multiple that we've never seen for this stock, upwards of 28, 29 times. So how important is valuation right now in your framework when you're trying to break down some of these different uh, single names or sectors and, and how they fit in your market framework? It's really hard to use history and valuation work when you have this renaissance in technology and these total addressable markets that are enormous. You guys know these numbers better than I do. AI, I mean, McKinsey's out there saying it's like a two and a half trillion dollar total addressable market by 2030. Cybersecurity is a trillion dollar by 2030. Cloud is just in the beginning. There's only 15% of workloads that are on the cloud. So all these kinds of things are really fuel for the growth, fuel for the excitement. Does it get carried away? Sure it does. It's very hard to justify Apple at 30 times for growing low single digit revenues and earnings. I'm not there, but yet it's 7% of the S&P 500. So to the extent, and Microsoft, same deal, 36 times for what you're getting. There's a lot of hype I think in both of those names, but they're 14% of the S&P 500 collectively. And that's big. So if you buy an ETF, you have to buy those things. And those things just can like perpetuate the whole situation. So I think there is a place within technology that you want to be. I don't want to be where everybody is. I'll own maybe one or two, which I do. I own Amazon. I, I like that one because I think it's a special situation story. Believe it or not, it lagged most of the Fab 7 last year. But I think that there's much more excitement in, as I mentioned, cybersecurity, much more important important and excitement in cloud, in the semi-cap equipment companies. I know they've had a good runs, but you're talking about 24 to 26 times forward estimates, which is palatable, especially when you're just about to see like wafer fab equipment start to recover. And so I think there's really pockets within technology that I'm making big bets in so that I can at least participate in the technology rally. But yeah, I have a hard time with some of the fab seven and they're going to just have to rally around without me kind of thing. I'm and just looking for other places where valuations aren't even close to that in other sectors. Steph, understanding that energy is not important in terms of market weighting. What do you make of the sector? Because you can make a very compelling case on valuation. Quite frankly, you've been able to do that for quite some time. Correctly to a point, incorrectly lately, the underlying commodity up and down, but effectively nowhere for the last six, seven months. What are your thoughts on the energy sector this year? Because a lot of M&A, a lot of interesting people making big bets in very specific names. What are your thoughts here? I think it's fascinating. It had a bad year last year, but the prior two years, it was they were the leaders. To your point, guys, spot on, the industry itself has made... $400 billion of M&A in the last 12 months. And it's almost like unrecognized, right? Or unappreciated. We had Chevron and Exxon that haven't done deals in 10 years. And all of a sudden, Chevron comes out with three last year. And Exxon, we know with Pioneer. Very often, you just step back and say, if a sector underperforms, what are some of the CEOs, what are they doing? And if they are putting money to work and they are buying other companies, clearly they see value for the long term. And I think most of the companies of the big guys have said at $35 crude, they're still minting money in terms of free cash flow. So I want to own those kinds of stories. And maybe they're out of favor. Sure, they are. Two years ago, everybody was talking about energy. And then energy disappointed last year. And now no one's talking about energy. So I, I think there's a great opportunity there. And by the way, Mr. Warren Buffett is buying hands over fists 
Occidental as much as he can. Steph, what are some things that you believe that you think a lot of other investors don't believe right now? And when you think about, we could have asked you this question in January of 2023, and four, six weeks later, there was about to be a regional banking crisis, right? There was about to be a whole, and that wasn't on too many people's bingo cards, if you will. But I'm just curious, a lot of folks who like to get clicks on maybe their podcast or their blogs or this, that, whatever, they're going to be talking about China in Taiwan. They're going to be talking about just an expanded war in the Middle East and inflation being embedded because of all these geopolitical hotspots. And they're going to try to make lots of stories about what a second Trump presidency looks like or a second Biden presidency looks like. And I think a lot of great investors try to take out a lot of the noise and they try to think about what is most likely to happen. So I'm just curious, what are some things that you think are probably underappreciated in this environment right now that that could have, let's say, a, a more positive effect or or a more adverse effect than what the base case scenario is for most investors right now? There's always stuff to worry about. You guys know just as well as I do, the market always climbs a wall of worry. I worry when I don't worry because that means I'm complacent. I don't want to be complacent. So to your point, Dan, I always am looking for the other side. And And when you mentioned, yeah, China and war and maybe inflation remaining stubbornly sticky and Trump or Biden and the unknowns there. I often say to people, and I know you guys don't want to hear it either, but and I don't really want them to do it, but I always say, turn the TV off. I want them to watch you guys. I want them to watch me for sure. But negativity sells more than positivity. And the way you're going to get through these concerns and these unknowns is just by doing fundamental analysis and, and talking to companies and listening to CEOs and their the C-suite. And they'll tell you a lot without even telling you. And I would say that you mentioned the bank crisis. I certainly wasn't forecasting that, but I don't know if any of us knew that Silicon Valley Bank didn't have a chief risk officer at the company at the time. So it kind of crazy things come up uh, that you don't really expect. And I try just to focus on the number one or number two company in any given industry. And when it gets hit on a Silicon Valley Bank kind of news, there's opportunity to buy quality on sale. And that's the best advice I've given myself over the years is when you get a look at a really great company that's down because everything else is getting hit, that's when you buy. And that's buying low and selling high. And most people say they do. And you know that they don't. Most people buy high and sell low. Steph, the S&P 500 made an all-time high this week. But contra to that, the Russell 2000 through the lens of the IWM, they made its, it's made its all-time high back in November of 2021. And quite frankly, it hasn't gotten close since. Recently, we sort of bounced up against some resistance, but listening to you for the last 20 minutes or so, if all the things that you believe come to fruition, it stands to reason that the small caps might be one of the most interesting places to be this year. I think you're right, but I also think it's pretty consensus too. And I think that in October of last year, when the equal weight S&P started to outperform the market cap S&P, that was the broadening that we saw. And small caps got caught up in that too. It's kind of the same factor, Guy. They all tend to trade the same. And a lot of that is because the IWM, a lot of constituents are financials in the indexes. If you believe in broadening out and you believe in financials starting to see a little bit of an interest and a perk up, then small caps can do well. For me, the transparency is so much less for small caps. It's also the liquidity is so much less. And so the 
beta is really a lot more. And I got enough juice with energy and industrials and financials. They all similarly trade together. And so I have no problem with the small caps. I just think maybe you want to just right size it relative to the overall portfolio. Yeah, Stefan. So Guy just asked the last question, starting off with the S&P at all-time highs. We have inflation readings coming down. We're going to get more later on this week. We have unemployment still below 4%, very near, what, 50, 60-year lows. It seems like things are okay here. Now, my question is, like, the Biden administration, they are getting very poor marks in the economy, but it seems, I guess, the economy is okay if you look at it through the lens of the stock market, right? If you look at it through the lens of unemployment, if you look at, like, gas at the pump. And like here, what do you think market participants want to happen in the U.S. election this year? Because it's a tough one, right? If you're just looking at the way voters are, are, are giving marks to the current administration, not particularly good. If you're looking at the way investors are looking at, they're saying things are pretty good. So I'm just curious whether disrupting the apple cart is the right thing to do right now. I'm not talking about which way people should vote. I'm just curious at some point as we get into the summer and then in the fall, there is going to be increased volatility in and around the the polls in the general election. I think that's right. But I think usually the the last year of an incumbent president usually is a pretty good one. Is it up 26% like last year? No way. I don't think we're going to see another 26%. No, upper single digits, low double digits is entirely possible. And usually the markets do well because the administration can pull some strings on the margin to have the economy do fairly well. If you have a Fed that's easing a little bit and you have all this extra stimulus that's yet to get into the economy, meaning the infrastructure stuff, I think the economy is going to do pretty well. I don't know what people are rooting for, but I got to tell you, it doesn't really matter that much about who wins the presidency. It's more about Congress. And I know what the market likes usually, and that's a split Congress. And that's because nothing usually gets done, which is very sad, as we all know, because we want things to get done. But when nothing gets done, we don't have these massive surprises that happen. And that's what the market has struggles with. It's this the unknowns. And then, of course, you get these big surprises. And that's when you have a volatility, which you both know very well. You'll have that, you'll have that spike higher. So I think we'll just have to watch. Look, I think what's going to definitely happen, and I don't know if it's already starting to happen or not, but you're going to have, as you get closer to the election, sectors, certain sectors are going to do different things. Obviously, if Trump is leading, you'll see some of the sectors, favorable sectors that he's in favor of in terms of parts of the economy, they will do better. I suspect the dollar will go stronger. I think yields will go higher. The reverse probably is the case under Biden. But make no mistake, both of them like to spend. Trump to spend, he just spent on different places and different things. Biden, we know, also likes to spend. So debt and the deficits that we're seeing in, the, in this country started well before, but both of them. And it had to do with both parties. So I don't know if that makes me feel better or not. I feel sorry for our kids because I think our kids are going to have to deal with it. I think we're going to kick the can until we can kick the can. And that's going to be when they have to deal with it, unfortunately. But that's obviously top of mind. It's probably one of the number one questions that I get from advisors when I talk to them. I'm not really sure I answered your question, Dan, but just a couple of random thoughts. No, but it is a really interesting thing to consider because I go back to 2000. I go back to an eight. These were both election years. Both had a lot of volatility two very different paths being created. And, and to me, I don't have the answers. That's why I like to ask smart people like you. But I also like to get a sense for what the advisors are asking. It seems like they're already starting to ask those questions. So I appreciate the answer. 
hundred percent. They're nervous about it. Their clients are nervous about it. But I would just say one last thing on uh, just in terms of advisors and just where, first and foremost, it's two things that happened last year that was really consensus, which I'm curious if you guys have seen or heard the same thing. Number one, the 60-40 asset allocation is back. Is it 60-40, 70-30, 80-20? Who the heck knows? That depends on the advisors and their clients and the risk and everything else. But the point being is there are alternatives out there now. And what we saw in within Hightower is a lot of money, not necessarily selling equities, but just whatever cash they had would either go into cash because you get 5% to sleep at night or into fixed income. So that was one thing that I thought was really very popular. And I wonder if that reverses a little bit this year, especially if rates come down. The other thing is there's uh, $6 trillion in money markets at this point. It kind of relates to what I just said, but $6 trillion is a lot of money on the sidelines. And I know that we all like to sleep at night. None of us do. The three of us, we do not sleep. I understand that. But people like to try to sleep and 5% is a great number. Uh, I just wonder if we have another year that's off to the races, if we have another year where MAG7 and tech continues to run, do you have this mad chase? Because there's opportunity cost. I'm just curious what you guys what you guys think of that. No, there's no question about it that that chase is alive and well. And if you think about the names that we talk about, they've all become their own asset class. We briefly talked about Apple in terms of its valuation, but quite frankly, you can make a case of valuation doesn't really matter when you're talking about a stock that's in the top 15 holding of some 320-something ETF. So as money flows in, whether you realize it or not, you own Apple. And that's great for Apple, and it's great as money flows into the market. It's not necessarily great, though, when passive becomes active. But I hear you in terms of the 60, 40, 70, 30, whatever it is. I think non-consensus this year could be 10-year yields actually going higher for a myriad of different reasons. So that's probably another conversation for another time. But that's clearly something that I don't think people are talking about right now. Yeah, but I, and I keep hearing people talk about, is this 95, 96, 97, that sort of thing. And, and here's the thing. The companies are different. I get it. The concentration up top is very different. I, I think if January turns into February, turns into March, and we are looking at an S&P that right now is up two and a half percent, it was down three percent or something just a few weeks ago. If we're up double digits at the end of Q1 or something like that, we run the risk of crashing, actually, because the only way that could happen, Steph, is increased concentration in the names that we've just talked about. And then when you have that sort of concentration in such a small group of stocks that are relying on basically the same outcome of a technology that you already told us, and we agree with you, is going to materialize over the next 5, 10, 15 years. You can't pull forward that sort of enthusiasm in the stock market. And so I do worry that an accident is waiting to happen. The higher we go like this in a parabolic fashion is the harder we could fall. And if you thought 2022 was a really bad year for stocks, that was about as orderly as a bear market gets. And it's about as tidy as it gets in a one-year period too. And so I just take you back to 2000. 01, 2008. And while that was just a one-year bear market, it was pretty violent. And I think a lot of investors have forgotten what violence feels like in the terms of financial oppression in the stock and the bond market. And so to me, I, and I'm not calling for that, but I'm saying the wackier things get right now to the upside is the harder they fall to the downside. So I'll just leave you on that nice note. <laughs> let, let me end by saying this, whether it's Squawk Box, whether it's Power Lunch, Halftime reports, squawk on the street, closing bell. 
the viewers are lucky that you're on those shows pretty frequently, but CNBC is fortunate to have your talents and your thoughts. So they're lucky. We are lucky today. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you, guys. You're the best. Can't wait for the next one. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.